Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Bonjour. Hola. And of course, good day. Today's scripture reading is Exodus 14, 10 through 22, which is on page 67 in the Pew Bible, and also James 1.19, which is page 1196, page 67 and 1196. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and all his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And in James 1.19, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Thank you, Jim. So I'll never forget my friend Steve Tizer's bachelor party. He was the, one of the first of our friends to get married. Uh, I was still in college. And so his, his bachelor party was definitely one of the more adventurous of the bachelor parties that I was a part of. As I've gotten older and my group has gotten older, our bachelor parties have become more tame, less adventurous, uh, injuries, that kind of thing, kind of take us out of, uh, out of the game. But this particular bachelor party, we took him the day before his wedding on a whitewater rafting trip on the Poudre River in the middle of Colorado. And we were, we were stoked about this. We went into this with such an incredible amount of confidence. Uh, we went, my brother was the raft guide, and he had been a professional raft guide. So we were in good hands. Uh, and then we also took with us Steve, the, the groom, and this roommate of mine. And both of them, they were both like, you know, athletes, played basketball and all this kind of stuff. So they, they were in good shape. And, and then we, we took with us two Division I NCAA football players from the University of Wyoming. Just tough guys, right? And then there was me, right? I mean, so come on now. Just ready to go here. Anyway, we went in with so much confidence going into this, uh, this rafting trip just feeling like we are going to conquer uh, this 
They're going to name the river after us after we're done with this. And boy, it was nothing like that. It was one challenge after another. It would seem like we would go through or overcome or just barely make it through one challenge. And then we'd think, oh, finally. And then there would be another one. Right? The, 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 poor grooms, uh, the poor groom, uh, he fell out three times. Uh, we actually had to pull over to the side of the river at one point and wrap blankets around him. We thought he was going to get hypothermia. Uh, then, then everybody fell out except for my brother. Somehow he managed, I saw, um, as, as I was falling backwards, uh, for a split second, I saw him jump up and tackle the top of the boat before it flipped. So he stopped it from flipping, uh, but everybody else fell out. I actually pulled in a 300-pound offensive lineman on that particular occasion. Thank you very much. Uh, and then, so, so the, everybody falls out, and then we get, we get, we're getting towards the end, and the bottom of the boat, there's a huge, rips this huge hole, and the last, like, 15 minutes, we are just trying to see if we can get the boat over to the side of the river for this takeout. The entire journey was just challenge after challenge after challenge after challenge. Now, what I'd like to suggest to us today, and this is in a similar light as to what I said last week, and that is that... That is not an extraordinary story. I would say that that is pretty much what life is like. Life is one challenge after another after another. And, you know, when you're younger, when I was younger, I used to think, like, well, I've just got to get through, you know, there's some big challenges, big things i got to figure out. You know, like, I've got to find someone who would marry me. You know, huge, oh, my gosh, how am I going to overcome that obstacle? And, uh, you know, i want I got to finish my education, got to try to overcome that obstacle. And then, and then, you know, if I can get a job and be married and get, my, get kids, right, then I'll finally have gotten over all these challenges, right? And then you discover once you finish your degree and you, you get your job and you get married, get your kids, that's when the challenges begin. And as, as, I, as I've spoken with some of the older members of our congregation, I think one of the steps of maturity that you come to is just realizing the challenges never end. We will always be facing adversity. Today we're continuing in our series on the book of Exodus. We are just going through the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus tells the story of the people of Israel. It tells the story of the people of Israel at a particular time in their history. Now, one of the things, and I, I sort of bring this up every once in a while as I've been going through this series, is that the book of Exodus is a theological history. It's, in other words, it, it tells the history of the people of Israel through a theological lens. So it's very much crafted and shaped by certain theological purposes and agendas. And the thing is, is that for modernists, those of us in this sort of post-enlightenment world that we live in, we don't like this. We don't even know how to handle this. We don't know. We like our history and our theology totally separate. We don't understand how they could go together. This is why in you go to, I think, probably most university campuses, if they have a theology department, it most likely is not in the same building as the history department. They're two separate disciplines, and so the reality is that neither one of these disciplines know quite what to do with the book of Exodus because it's, 
It tells history through a theological lens. It tells history, but it's shaped by a theological lens, which means that we shouldn't press the historical details. We aren't necessarily to press the historical details. Yet, on the other hand, it's not just theology. It's not just a nice story that is fabricated that makes some sort of a moral point. No, it's, it's history. In fact, Christian theology is grounded in history. Again, this is something that's very difficult for people in our culture to get. The theology, Christian theology is dependent on things having happened historically, the Exodus being one, and of course, most centrally, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So it's telling history, but it's also shaped through this theological lens. And I just say that I remind you of that as we're going through this book. So we've been going through the book of Exodus. Now, I have not been hitting every passage. Um, I, if I hit every passage, one of you, some of you might feel like you're enslaved, you're in slavery uh, in the book of Exodus as I'm taking you, th- and I didn't want to do that. So I, I'm not hitting every passage, which is why some of you, the alert listener, the one who's been paying attention, may be like, well, then why are you doing the same passage twice? Because last week, I did the same passage. Why are we looking at the same? Okay. Why are we looking at the same passage twice? And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. One is that, in all honesty, last week, I just had way too much material, and we were going to be here all day if I included it all in one sermon. But there's a reason for that. Because secondly, a reason to do this passage twice is to emphasize just how central this passage is to the Bible and just how central it is to the story that unfolds in the Bible. This this passage, this story of them being delivered and coming through the Red Sea, there is a sense in which every other passage, in certainly in the Hebrew Scriptures, is should be evaluated in light of this story here. Uh, another, or put it differently, verse fourteen really kind of sums up what this passage is all about. Right, so here, here they are facing this incredible amount of adversity. They're standing here. Uh, they've got their backs against the Red Sea. They've got the Egyptian army coming after them. The Israelites are stuck. They're trapped. And we have this verse, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And I would suggest that every other passage in the Hebrew Scriptures, going back, beginning at least with uh, Abraham, actually even going back to Adam, every story, Adam, Abraham, uh, moving forward to past Moses, to Joshua and David. I mean, you move through every single story, and it can be evaluated in light of this one question. Did they live this out or not? Were they still, and did they let the Lord fight for them? And depending on what passage you look at, sometimes they didn't, sometimes they didn't. And I would suggest that that question is the question which we should apply to our own stories. As you go through your life and you face challenges and adversity, there is just one simple question. Do you live your life in light of this reality that God will fight for you? You need be only still. So because of the centrality of this passage. That's why we're looking at it more than one week. Now, last week, we looked primarily at the first part of this. The Lord will fight for you. Today, we're going to look at the second part, and that is 
You need only to be still. What does it mean to be still in the midst of adversity? Well, the first thing I think we need to observe is that to be still in the midst of adversity does not mean do nothing. It doesn't mean do nothing, right? So here they are. They've got their backs against the the Red Sea, and they've got the Egyptian army coming after them. And what the Lord has them do, he, he doesn't say to the Israelites, sit back, relax, and enjoy the fight. That was clever, wasn't it? <laughs> we got one laugh. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy the fight. All right, maybe I should, I'll run these by Craig next time. He'll, he'll help me to know if I should use them or not. Right. He's, he's, he's not telling them to just sit there and watch me as I destroy uh, the Egyptian army. No, what is a verse, uh, let's see here, verse 16 says to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry land, right? Oh, yeah, you're not just going to stand there. You're going to walk between two massive walls of water that look like they're going to crush you at any moment now, right? This is not you do nothing. It's not do nothing to be still. So what does it mean? What does it mean? To be still. What does it mean to be still? And I would say this. Recognize that you are in a battle. That's the first thing. To be still in the midst of adversity is, is first of all, to simply recognize that you are in a battle in the first place. The reason why I say that is I think that many of us live in denial. We live in denial of the battles that we we are fighting, the battles that we are in. Right, and, and we, you know, we come to church and, you know, you, you walk in, you know, you come in the main doors and you come in as a nice little family, husband, wife, kids, smiles, right? And, you know, but on the way here, you're just bickering and fighting in the drive all the way here, right? But when you walk in the doors, you know, you're just, you know, you put on this face and we just kind of live in this denial that anything is going wrong. Yeah, no, life's good. You know, got, got you know, family, kids, you know. Job Monday through Friday, I've got soccer on Saturdays, church on Sundays, unless there's soccer on Sundays, but whatever. Anyway, so, so, you know, I've just got this life, and it's going great, and I just put on my smile. And when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I say, I'm fine. And, and here's what we all know. Most of the time, I don't know about most of the time, but a lot of the time when you say, I'm fine, you're lying through your teeth. What it means to be still before the Lord is, first of all, simply to recognize that you are in a battle. And, and that's, that's why we sing songs like we did this morning. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on, right? These sort of this battle imagery. Like, why do we do that? It's to remind ourselves, you know, we are in a battle. There's a battle. There are battles that we are fighting every day in life. So, first of all, what it means to be still in the midst of adversity, is to recognize that you are in a battle. But now, here's secondly, here. Here's, here's what we need to realize. The battle that we think we are in isn't the real battle. The battle we think we are in isn't the real battle. Because here's actually the truth. I mean, we, on one hand, we all live in denial as if everything's fine. But then on the other hand, we just complain all the time about what's going on in lives, Right? <laughs> Right? I mean, you come home and you complain to your spouse about what's going on in work, 
uh, and then you go to work, and you complain at work about what's going on with your spouse at home, right? I mean, we complain about these battles that we're facing. You complain about the commute to work. We complain uh, about the contractor working in our house, you know? I mean, we, we find all kinds of things to complain about. We, well, there are these battles that we see ourselves fighting, but here's what we need to realize. The battle that you think you're, you're fighting, it's not the real battle. It's actually just a symptom of the real battle that's going on. That battle that you're having with your boss or with your coworker, that's really just a symptom of another battle that's going on. The battle that you might find yourself having with your spouse, that's just a symptom of the real battle that's going on. Here's what we need to realize. And here's to be still in the midst of adversity is to, is to realize that the primary battle you're facing, it isn't out there. It's in here. The primary battle that you're facing isn't out there It's in here. In the book of Ephesians, Paul makes this clear. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And all of that, he's talking about these these forces, these spiritual powers. That's where the real battle is. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not about what's out there. It's about what's going on in the heavenly realms. And of course, where is it that we connect with the heavenly realms? It's in here. It's in our heart. It's in our soul. That's like a portal into the heavenly realms. That's where you see where the real battle is, is going on. That battle with your, your coworker, that conflict that you have, that's a symptom of a battle that's going on in their heart and probably in yours too. That conflict that you're having in your marriage, that's not the real battle. It's the result of a battle that's going on in your spouse's heart and, and, and probably in yours too. To be still before the Lord is to realize that the battle isn't out there, it's in here. And, and what, what is this battle really all about? This battle is for your trust. Do you trust That's the battle that we, is being waged inside our hearts. Do we trust God? And actually, you know, going back here a little bit, I think even in the book of Exodus, we see this to be the reality, right? So on the surface, it seems like, well, the battle is against the Egyptians, right? Battle's against the Egyptians. It's what's out there. But actually, as you, you move on, after they've, you know, they've been freed, from the Egyptians, later on, there's this whole scene with the golden calf where we're going to come to it later where Moses is up on the mountain and the Israelites are down below and they're waiting for Moses to come back and they're waiting for God to to show them what to do and they get impatient. They lose their trust and so then they build this golden calf. They switch, they switch gods. Now it's like, well, we don't really trust this God, so now we're going to trust him. So, so this battle is going on even after they are delivered from the Egyptians. And actually, the heart of the matter is seen even in this passage, right? We find here in verses 11 and 12, they said to Moses, 
Why was it? So here they are. They're pressed up against the Egyptians on one side. They're pressed up against the, the Red Sea on the other. They say to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? Right? And in, in the book of Exodus, the word serve often really points to this idea of worship. And so there's this battle going on. on who, who, do, who do you really trust? Where, where, do you trust in God or do you trust in something else? This is the battle that we're facing. So in whatever, whatever adversity is going on out there, the battle going on inside is do you trust God to get you through it? Do you trust God to deliver you through it? With whatever battle is going on out there, do you, do you trust God? Do you trust God enough to consider the possibility that you might not even be seeing that conflict very clearly at all? That in fact, the problem might even be your perspective. We're, we're going to come to this a little bit later on. But what I'm getting at here is do you trust God enough to consider the possibility that the problem with your boss isn't your boss, it's you? Do you trust God enough to consider that possibility? Do you, do you trust God enough to consider that that battle that you're facing, that financial battle that you're facing, that the real battle isn't, isn't your your finances, it's your materialism, right? Mama needs a new pair of boots. Mama needs a new pair of boots because 15 pairs in the closet just don't, aren't enough. Is it possible? Do you trust God enough to reconsider and see the possibility that maybe you're not seeing it correctly? But even if you are, right, even if you are seeing with a certain amount of clarity the battle that you're facing out there, if you really rest in God, what you'll see is that, again, that battle out there becomes the playing field for the battle for your trust. That's the playing field for your battle for trust. So, in other words, it becomes that challenge you're facing might become precisely the place where you win the real battle, which is trusting God. That's why in the book of James, for example, it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. And what James is getting at there is that when you face a trial, it's, it's like th- here there's an opportunity for that, that battle to be won, for me to really submit and surrender my trust to God. That The reality is that without that outward adversity, sometimes we can't really tell, am I really trusting in God or not? Now, all of this points then to the heart of what it means to be still in the face of adversity and that's this, to recognize your complete dependence on God. In the midst of adversity, do we recognize our complete dependence upon God? And I say complete dependence because, as I shared earlier on, there's, there's rarely a moment when we don't face adversity, right? Uh, just when you get over one conflict, another one's coming the way. And that's just, that's just how life is going to continue to go. And so because that is complete, adversity is complete and total. The question is, do we recognize our complete dependence upon God? And here, just as a side note, I want us to, 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 to point this out, that in many respects what the purpose 
of church is, the purpose of why we gather here, is to once again reorient our lives and realize our dependence upon God. It's to come here and say, God, I need you. I I put my trust in you. I depend completely upon you. The purpose of church, you see, in this respect, is very much to help you to trust God more. This is important, and I make this point pretty, pretty regularly. It's not so much that we come to church because we trust God. I mean, we would do that too, but it's more like we come to church precisely because we need to come to church to help us to learn to trust God, right? So, for example, one of the ways this changes the way we approach church is, is I've heard people say they'll come to church and they'll sing songs about God. Oh, God, you're so great. Oh, God, I put my faith in you. Oh, God, I trusted you. And sometimes when we sing it, we feel like hypocrites, right? Because you're like, you know what? I don't, it's like I'm not really, I haven't been living that out. I don't really know that my heart is really trusting in God. So you're like, I, I, I don't know if I should sing it. No, that's exactly why you should sing it. That's exactly why you should sing it. We, we don't sing it necessarily because that's where we are. We sing these songs with the hope that they will shape us and that we will come in line with what it's saying. That's why, and I, I say this all the time, one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount. The first line says, Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. It, it, I mean, you're already singing, right? You're already singing, Come Thou Fount, and it's like, Tune my heart so that what I'm singing, singing is actually what's going on in my heart. We come here, again, if you feel like, boy, I don't know, I don't know if I should sing these songs because I've been so far from God. No, that's why you sing. I, I don't know if I should come to church and participate in these activities. I, I've been far from God. No, that's why you come to church, that as we do so, through God's Spirit, it begins to shape us. It's a little like this kind of analogy here. Um. It's like taking your spouse on a date. Now, if you take your, your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, you, you take them on a date, um, hopefully you're doing it because you love them. Hopefully you're doing it because you really want to be with them, right? But, but here's the reality. As any good marital counselor will tell you, you should go on a date even if you're not getting along. In fact, that's especially when you should go on a date. I mean, hopefully you're going because you really want to be with them. But those times, like, man, I don't, I don't even want to be around him. I don't even want to be around her. That's exactly when you should go on a date. That's like marital counseling 101. You go to cultivate that relationship with your spouse. And in the same sense, when you feel far from God, that's precisely when you should come. And hopefully, of course, as you do so, it'll change. And it, just like hopefully you go on a date and you rekindle that love and you want to be with one another, same sense in terms of our coming before uh, church, coming before God in church. So, again, sort of summarizing all of this, what does it mean to be still in the midst of adversity? First of all, it's to recognize that you are in a battle. So don't just live in denial, but, but also recognize that the battle is not the one that you think it is. It's not that conflict out there. It's, it's deeper than that. To be still in the midst of adversity is to recognize our dependence upon God. Now, here's the truth. None of what I've just said here, in one sense, really describes what it looks like to be still. Everything I've just told you there is sort of a precondition for what it looks like to be still. What What does it look like for someone to be still? 
the midst of adversity. And, and as I was kind of praying over this passage over the last couple of weeks, this verse came to mind, James 1.19. But dear brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, when, when you're still before God, there's probably a lot of different ways in which that will play out. There's a lot of different ways in which that will look, what that will look like. But I think this verse really gets at one aspect of this. When you are really still before God, you will be able to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, right? Because why, why is it that this is so difficult, right? Why is it difficult for us to be slow to speak? Why are we always so quick to speak? Especially, you see, in the, in the face of adversity, right? When somebody criticizes us, it, we just immediately, we want to speak back. We want to get right back at them. You see, what, the person who is still before the Lord recognizes that there is a buffer between them, that attack, and you, right? And I pointed this out last week, that when the Israelites are being, uh, they're standing here before the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming, and that attack is coming, the Spirit of God comes and creates a buffer between them and the Egyptians. You see, when you realize that God is there, His Spirit is there as a buffer, then when somebody attacks you, you don't have to fight back. You can be quick to listen. You don't have to defend yourself because there's that buffer that's there. Be quick to listen, slow to speak. Slow to become angry. You know, why, why do we get angry? Why is it we get angry in the first place? I would suggest that one of the primary reasons why angry is fear. Anger is really kind of oftentimes is a surface emotion. We get angry because we're afraid. And when we are still before God, there's no reason to be angry. The angry person is often a scared person. The angry person is a person who's scared. They're scared. They're scared that their reputation is going to be tarnished. You know, whatever happened, whatever conflict they're in, they're, they're scared that their reputation is going to be tarnished. They're scared that opportunities are slipping away from them. And because they're scared, this so often turns itself into anger. And I think it's not a coincidence that when you look back at this passage, before God says you need only to be still, listen to what Moses says in verse 13. Do not be afraid. You see, it's that fear. It's that fear that hinders your ability to be still. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You're, 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 you're angry because you're afraid. And when you are resting in God, you're no longer afraid. And I think one of the key ways in which you're no longer afraid anymore, just one sort of example of this, is you're not afraid to be wrong. I think we live in a culture where many of us, we're just, we're afraid to be wrong about a lot of things. And, and that's why we're, we're quick to defend when somebody challenges what we think or believe, we're afraid to be wrong. And, and so what happens is, and I was pointing this out last week, when God isn't your foundation, you have to be right about a lot of other things. But when God is your foundation, you, you don't have to be right about other things anymore. 
There's this one, in other words, see what Christ, here's what Christian's approach to being right is. We are anchored in the reality of who God is. That is what we see with absolute crystal clarity. The love of God poured out for us in stories like the Exodus. The love of God poured out for us in the cross. That is what we see with absolute crystal clarity. And because we see that clearly, we're actually able then to recognize that much of everything else that we see is not so clear. But when you don't have that anchor, well, you, you, get, you get something's got to be clear. And so, you, you know, you, you've got to be right about this. So somebody challenges that, it's very, it's very difficult for you. You know, and this is why I, I made this point last week that, that when you really, when you become a believer and you become to rest more in the Lord, it almost does the opposite of what you would think. What you would think, or what a lot of people think, is that, well, once I come to know the Lord, then I'm just going to start to have crystal clarity about all kinds of things. Now, I come to know the Lord, and I'm going to know exactly how to raise my kids, and I'm going to know exactly how to, how to, you know, handle marriage, and I'm going to know exactly what career path to choose. I mean, I come to know God, and I'm just going to know how to do all. Everything's going to become crystal clear. And I would almost suggest that when you come to know the Lord, it's almost the opposite. Because it's legalism that gives you crystal clarity in all of these different areas. When you're crystal clear uh, about who God is, it allows you to recognize the complexity of our world around us and to realize you don't necessarily have to be right about all of these different things. Look, Christians, okay, here's what it is. I'm just straight. We are closed-minded about the supremacy of Jesus. We are closed he is God. He is Lord. He, is, he shows us the love of God. That, that, that is what we see with absolute crystal clarity. And that allows us to be open-minded about so much, so much else. Christians ought to be some of the most open-minded about politics. We ought to be some of the most open-minded about how to raise your kids. I mean, all of, these, all of these different things. In other words, we can be quick to listen. How many... In our culture today, how many people are quick to listen on political matters? I mean, politics come up, and it's just like it's just like the guns just start blazing. Now, Christians should be the most open. We should be the most willing to listen because we have crystal clarity in the one thing that really matters. You know, we should be willing to be quick to listen and slow to speak with regards to all kinds of things. This actually was brought to my attention even recently in a conversation with Craig. Uh, as I told you, Craig starts today, and so I tried to not let him in the building. I called security a few times, you know, tried to kick him out. Uh, but he just couldn't, st- and I told him, I'm not going to talk with you about church until the 15th, and then look out, right? Um, but he just, you know, he couldn't, he was getting too excited, so he kept bringing up church stuff. So finally, we sat down, and we had a talk, right? And we started talking about, like, philosophy of ministry. And different philosophies of ministry. And I started to like kind of, you know, espouse quite passionately this particular, you know, perspective I have on philosophy of ministry. And, and Craig's like, it was great. He's like, he's like, well, yeah. He's like, he's like you know, I could, I, I could go along with that. He's like, he's like, truthfully, though, I've seen a lot of different philosophies of ministry. I've seen God use lots of different ways of, of doing things. So, you know, I'm open to whatever. And so it was great because on one hand, he was affirming, and, you know, he's not trying to be confrontational. But there was also a little bit of a subtle rebuke, right? Kevin, you should also sit back and listen. 
But maybe you don't, your clarity doesn't need to be as clear or shouldn't be as clear as you think it is. You see, when you rest in the supremacy of Christ, that's what you're anchored in. You can be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry because you're not afraid to be wrong about so many things. Look, let me just kind of put it this way. Aren't you tired of feeling like you have to have everything right? Aren't you tired of feeling like you've got to have everything figured out? Don't you waste so much emotional energy wrestling with things you just can't figure out? There's so much freedom in resting in the gospel. God is a God who loves us. God is a God in whom we can rest, and so we don't have to be right about so many different things. Summing summing all of this up, let me just ask this question for you. How many of you are facing adversity today? You don't have to raise your hand, because if you didn't raise your hand, you'd be lying, and I don't want to put you in that position. How many of you are facing adversity? What are you facing today? um, are Are you angry Because you're scared, what is it you're scared of? Listen, whatever battles that you're fighting out there, they're not the real battle. The real battle that you're fighting is a battle in your heart for will you surrender and trust God. My hope is that today and moving forward into this next year, we would be a church that would come to realize more and more that in the face of adversity, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you. We praise you for the clarity that we have in who you are a sovereign God who loves us to a depth that we could never and will never fully understand. God, may that be our anchor. God, may we rest in that, that whatever comes our way, Lord, we will be able to be still. We pray this in Jesus' name.